It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, as usual. It's uh, Monday morning for me here in Thailand. Um, I, yeah, I'm trying a couple of new things right now. Uh, one being with a new internet connection. I'm tethering off of my phone because it seems to be faster, but it may be un unreliable. So apologies in advance if anything cuts out. Um, <clears throat> I'm also trying some things internally because I'm trying to finally take the advice that many listeners of the podcast uh, share with me, which is that I speak too fast. Uh, it's funny because I, I know I speak too fast sometimes. I know that especially with like abstract topics when I get excited and I have stories to tell and I want to squeeze into the time, maybe I'm doing it right now, I end up uh, pacing a little too fast for many people to comprehend. But I listened back to my last two podcasts, which I'm pretty proud of how they turned out. And I'm like, I actually felt that I was speaking slow for the amount of information I wanted to get out. But anyway, I want to take the, the you know, I want this to be as uh, understandable to people listening. So I'm going to do my best to keep it slow and to ensure that I did it this time. Uh, for this episode, I actually purposely, not that I underprepared, I purposely uh, prepared less talking points. So either this is going to be a very short episode or I'm actually going to pace at a, at a more uh, comprehensible speed. Announcements. Um, if you're in the Facebook group, you may have seen that a couple weeks ago I put out a poll asking, uh, just asking your thoughts on what a good title for an introspective program would be. I mean, my impetus for this was when quarantine or like when most lockdowns started for people around the world. Uh, certainly social media use spiked up. I think it's very bad for our attention, especially as men, really for anybody to be letting someone else or some other uh, entity direct your attention because attention is our most valuable resource. And if you're constantly scrolling your feed and letting other things tell you what to think about, you're under expressing yourself. Forget about anything moral or, or whatever or life hacky. It's just like not the best way to live your life. If you look back at these months and you think and you see like all you spent your attention on was reading news and clickbait and arguing with people on the internet, you probably won't feel fulfilled about that as opposed to actively using your attention towards something. So I created that program. It's up now. I mean, the page needs to be made more pretty. I'm probably going to change it. But if you go to contemplativeman.com, that's available. It's a free program. There's three exercises. Full disclosure, because if you're listening to this, you probably have listened to other episodes. It is promoting. I mean, there is a promotion at the end of it for my archetype class. I'm just letting you know, I mean, the exercises I think are great. So whether you've taken the archetype class already or you have no interest in it, I still think is a cool thing to check out. I made it for value. And I'm actually going to speak about my take on marketing and artistic expression uh, in this episode because it ties into the topic of today. But last couple announcements, uh, episode 81 of the podcast, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, I think is coming out today, Monday, if not Tuesday. I don't actually do my own scheduling. I thought it was going to come out last week. It did not. Um, highly recommend it. It's one of my favorite podcasts, one of my favorite interviews I've done with anybody. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Grossman wrote the book on killing, which greatly affected the trajectory of my life. I ended up not joining the military or not accepting my commission in the Marine Corps uh, after reading that book. So if there's anything, if there's any interview uh, I really want people to listen to, it's that one. Um, not that the other ones aren't good as well. Uh, also, uh, coming up soon, I'm going to be interviewing Carolyn Elliott, who wrote the book Existential Kink. Uh, she's also the author of um, Witch Magazine. And that'll be in a couple of weeks. We actually had to reschedule but I'm mentioning her, even though it's not going to come out for a few weeks, because some of her ideas 
are in this episode. So today's episode is on amoebas. And I was actually thinking I, I would wait another week and come up with more ideas, but I didn't want to have too much stuff so I wouldn't speak too quickly. But also um, some random uh, synchronicities, I guess you could call them, came up with specifically the idea of amoebas. Uh, one being, I have a client uh, who's in captivity and he likes microscopes. He bought a microscope to have something to do uh, in captivity, in, uh, not captivity, in quarantine. Uh, so shout out to, you know, who you are. Um, and he was t saying to me how he's been looking at like uh, fish tank water and looking at the amoebas. And he was saying how um, amoebas, like no matter, like, all amoebas, they're in this water and they're always wiggling. They, sometimes they're not going anywhere. They're not doing anything, but they're always wiggling. Why is amoeba bothering wiggling? It's not doing anything. And uh, he said something poetic. I, it's, I'm, it's escaping me now about like, if this amoeba can just wiggle for the sake of wiggling, why can't, why don't I or anybody just do what we want to do all the time? Uh, he was also saying something about like, you know, there's something about just being and like amoeba consciousness. So like that was one thing that came up. Um, and then... Uh, the other thing that's more related to our, our topic, uh, this book I've been I've been drawing from the last couple of podcasts, uh, Eric Neumann's Origin History of Consciousness. Like maybe a day later, uh, I was I'm you know I'm, this is a long book and I've been um, uh, I've been working on it for a long time. It's pretty dense, but <clears throat> I'm like towards the end of the book now. And he he randomly not randomly, but he threw up a, an analogy with amoebas and amoeba consciousness and how. The formation of ego, which is the topic of today, uh, goes way back prior to what we consider consciousness. And he, as an example, it's like even an amoeba has some level of proto-consciousness, uh, a proto-ego, and we're going to define what that is. <clears throat> Something really interesting about the second half of this book is that it focuses less on mythology and more on basically evolutionary biology and a lot of the Jungian um, ideas when it comes to archetypes and these like kind of immaterial, sometimes mystical sounding ideas were actually mapped directly to Darwin's uh, theories of evolutionary biology, which we'll get into. Hold on. I must clear the frog from my throat. <clears throat> um, and then the third thing, the most random, I started uh, listening, reading a fictional book by Tom Robbins, who's a comedic American author, comedic, but also philosophical American author that I very much enjoy. And the opening to the book that I read is about, it's called Even Cowgirls Get the Blues. It's about the experience of a, a cowgirl. Um, the opening line is about amoebas, about how uh, amoebas live forever, like they, the way that they replicate. I mean, they, they just uh, replicate all the organelles and then, and then fissure and then split. Um, so basically, amoebas live forever unless they are killed by something. And like the original amoeba that ever existed probably still exists or does exist in, in some form. So anyway, I was like, all right, this is too many things. I have to talk about amoebas. At first, I wasn't really sure what we're talking about. But um, all right, so what, what, to, to, to let you know what we're talking about, uh, we're talking about the uh, formation of ego. Because I think in psychology, but also in like the spiritual communities, the word ego gets thrown around a lot. It's usually seen as this evil thing. And as uh, if you listen to the last couple episodes on the mother complex and the father wound, uh, the birth of ego and the creation of ego is an important uh uh, stage in the hero's journey. And we talked about it in like overcoming the great mother, the terrible mother within your psyche or your literal domineering mother, or probably both if, if that is an experience you have. And then also being able to deny the culture you're born into, be able to, to create separation and be an individual entity separate from the culture, which we map to the father or the paternal uh, side of our upbringing. Both of those things are critical for an individual human being to 
not even start their, not even go through the hero's journey, but simply to be a hero where they are a creative individual, where they set their own reality. This is important. And it starts with the formation of the ego. So if you remember from the mother, uh, if you haven't actually watched it, I'll explain it very briefly. Uh, the Son of Swords archetype, which is an archetype seen in the Mother Piece tarot deck, which is a very female-centric uh, tarot deck, it's kind of seen as an evil thing. Like the Son of Swords is basically the creation of the ego. It's this uh, birth of uh, adolescent masculinity where he's like, oh, crap, I don't actually have to listen to the mother all the time. I don't have to listen to what the tribe is saying. I'm going to go off and do my own thing to the to the point of detriment, like men who are stuck in this phase. And I, you know, I'll call out the red pill community. I think there's a lot of people in that world or, or MGTOW, certainly they've taken this important stage of development where they're denying their upbringing and creating their own way, but then always staying on their own way. Like the, the men who go their own way, the MGTOW guys never recognize that there's a lot of good stuff in the feminine. Just, I mean, it is important to have a backbone and not, not get trampled, but uh, there's actually half of the enjoyment of life comes from the feminine side of the collective, the feminine side of the psyche. Anyway, uh, this is all to say that the ego is an important thing and it's actually, um, you need an ego in order to be individuated. So uh, the basic idea behind all of this is that uh, the ego is is a, is a newer, and this is tying in the evolutionary biology with uh, Jungian's, uh, Carl Jung's view on uh, the unconscious contents of the psyche, many of what which he calls archetypes. Uh, the ego is basically the newest element of the uncon of the self. So if you think of your psyche as like this, actually the analogy I like to use is if you think of um, yourself as like a ship and it's got a bunch of different uh, uh, people on the ship, wor workers on the ship, deckhands. I don't know the names of the roles on a ship. I'm not a ship person, but like you got a bunch of like old timer seafaring dudes on the ship. The ego is, but they're all like disjointed. They all have their own agenda. Like one guy really wants to row. Another guy wants to throw up a, a flag. Another one wants to shoot a cannon. I don't know. I mean, you can, we can extend the analogy forever, but there's no one like organizing all of them to get them to go somewhere. So they hire a recent college grad. He's like a young guy. He's younger than all of them, but he happens to know a couple of things. He happens to know how to organize the group. That is the ego. That is the part of yourself that you identify as I, you know, ego means I in, um, or I means ego, Greek, yeah, you know what I'm saying. All right. Um, the problem is that this ego takes on its own, um, one of the defining elements of an ego is that it sees itself as separate. So one of the beauty or one of the benefits of an ego um, in human, let me turn off these notifications. I'm streaming on Facebook, so I can't not have the, the things pop up, but at least I could silence it. All right. <clears throat> um, one of the issues and like you know, the reason why the practical reason why we're talking about any of this besides the interesting mythology side or like oh it's interesting how we're, we're related to amoeba in this way um the practical thing is if your if your uh characters on your boat are not working together which is often the case right because like we'll talk about like how these archetypes develop in a second but very often they have their own agenda they're doing their own thing they're, they're like, oh, I have this function. It might have been a function that developed in your life when you were a child to keep you safe from like abuse or keep you safe from a, an emotionally threatening situation, but it doesn't have that role anymore. That part of your psyche, let's say like you have a protector archetype that wants to deny anyone getting close to you because it happened once when you were seven and it really hurt. It's going to keep doing it. It's like, that's all it knows. That part of your psyche is just going to keep doing and doing and doing. And if it's not like roped into line to work together with the ship, it can cause self-sabotage. Maybe as an adult, you try to get close to people, but that protector that kept you safe when you're seven years old is now like pushing people away. And then 
your ego, your conscious self was like, well, why do I keep doing that? Why do I keep self-sabotaging? It's because they're not in line because your ego is not doing its job. It's maybe it's seeing itself. So to really work off this analogy, and this relates to, uh, you know, the, the path I did not travel in life, which is the Marine Corps. Um, uh, it's like if the ego is afraid of the unconscious, which is something Neumann speaks about a lot. And this is an element of patriarchy. I spoke about this in the last episode. Um, the masculine side of the consciousness, the masculine side of the collective conscious uh, fears the unconscious because, like I just said, there's elements of the unconscious which can kind of foil our plans or, or steer us off course. If it creates that fear and you can imagine like if a young ship captain is terrified of his crew, he's going to be a pretty shitty ship captain. No one's going to listen to him. He's not going to have control. He might try, like hide in his in his captain's quarters and then the ship never moves and like mutiny happens. And like basically when someone's in a state of self-sabotage where like they're trying to do things, but everything is not working, it's like their internal ship is um, is mutinying. But Let's go back a second because I think there's some, there's some really interesting points in this book comparing um, archetypes, uh, comparing like the psychic view or the archetypal view of the psyche with evolutionary biology. So I spoke about this in the last episode comparing genes and memes. So I'm not going to repeat that uh, beyond like there is uh, the way that Jung conceptualized archetypes is, is very similar to the way Richard Dawkins conceptualized memes, basically comparing them to genes. A gene is a, a unit of of nature. Uh, a meme is a unit of culture. An archetype is a collection of different like immaterial functions of the mind. I realize I'm actually speaking kind of fast. This is slow for the way I'm thinking, but I'm going to slow down the level of comprehension and take a sip of water. All right. So let's look at it from, for the purpose of analogy, we can look at uh, the, the formation of life on earth. If you think of in the beginning, Big Bang, whatever, there is energy and matter, right? One uh, expression of energy and matter is light. Light is one uh, expression of energy or one form of energy. Uh, and then, you know, white light can be split into the different colors of the spectrum, Roy G. Biv, and, and other things that we can't see. I mean, there's, I mean, the visible, uh, what is visible light is only one small part of the electromagnetic spectrum, but let's go with that because we're humans. So you got Roy G. Biv. Um, uh, and this light, uh, this light, uh, on earth in the formation of life, uh, is taken in by early life forms. Um, so I spoke about this last episode, but, uh, there was some matter in the universe that for reasons we don't really know, found its way to replicate itself. These were genes. These were uh, what later become became chromosomes. They found a way to keep replicating themselves. They uh, evolved in a way that, um, uh, you know, built structures around themselves to make it easier and more beneficial. Or, or rather, I mean, a more reductionist way to looking at it is that uh, through random uh, random occurrences, certain certain bits of this replicating matter did better than others. Like, replicating matter that had the tendency to like smash itself into or like throw itself into a toxic environment didn't pass on but ones that randomly moved in the direction of uh surviving did survive and made more of itself so like this is how life began and we had our earliest life forms which uh, were basically clusters of matter that found uh, found a formation uh, found this way to organize itself uh, in a way that it would repeat so this brings us to the amoeba the amoeba the amoebas uh this is I'm briefly going to go into red queen theory. Amoebas, uh, the early life forms had parasites. The parasites uh, threatened the, the early organisms. So these organisms had to find ways to evolve and like 
Um, or if you look at things through random chance, they randomly, some of these randomly evolved and mutated in ways that were better at fighting the parasites. The parasites also evolved. Um, and these two things, uh, both the parasites and the organisms became more and more complex. In that, you had these clusters of cells, which instead of being a single cell like an amoeba, they got together because they, uh, either through random chance or some sort of uh, quote-unquote consciousness, found some uh, strategy for being better and better at surviving against the environment and parasites. And they, and they uh, clustered together and they organized. So um, even within a single cell, you have different units, organelles that have specific functions in a larger life form and in a animal and a human being, you have different organs and like, you know, every cell in your body has some sort of function and it's not necessarily conscious of the rest of it, but there is some sort of organizing consciousness, which we'll get into in a sec. And then if you look at the evolution of life, uh, you know, plants take the light of the, the sun, photosynthesize it into energy, animals eat that energy, uh, eat, eat those plants, turn that into energy, human beings bringing us to, to us, uh, eat plants and animals and that's what we're made of. So, so uh, it's a poetic way, but also a literal way of looking at it. We are uh, formations of light that have been clustered and passed down, perhaps through random chance, perhaps some sort of guiding consciousness, which we call the Tao. Um, when we talk about the, the you know, psychic experience of these early life forms and other life forms, um, going back to the amoeba, the amoeba doesn't really have much consciousness beyond like it has certain instincts or, or functions or programs to say, move away from toxicity, move towards things that would lead to its survival, nutrient, nutrition and stuff. Um, an amoeba, as, as, as noted earlier, will just wiggle. It's like constantly wiggling because it's trying to find homeostasis. It's trying to find that state where it's in an ideal balance where it can do its best in, in a, its version of procreation, which is uh, splitting. But in an amoeba, as far as we can tell from uh, at least our lens, it's, you know, quote unquote consciousness or, or proto consciousness only goes as far as uh, uh, going towards good things and away from bad things in, in some form. And in an amoeba, as far as we know, can't really tell the difference between what's within it and what's, what's without it. If a virus it gets into an amoeba cell and starts tearing it up, the amoeba won't necessarily know if it's like inside versus outside. This, this is kind of maybe hard to conceptualize, but like an amoeba doesn't know what its body is. So like it might experience like, oh, this tearing from this area, but it doesn't really, it, you know, it doesn't look at the world in three dimensions. So it doesn't really know if it's in or out. Like there's no, there's no really separation between as far as we can tell from amoeba's consciousness, uh, what's in and with what's without. Plants and animals do have a slightly more developed level of consciousness and can tell at least like what's physically it and what's physically not. Um, although if you look at like the, the psychic experience of let's say a dog um, or uh, a toddler, um, and we can see this in developmental psychology for children, when an experience happens to a child, they don't necessarily recognize they have a very centra, a centroverted view on the world where they think everything is about them. So if uh, a parent doesn't give a child love, the child thinks, oh, this must have been about me. I must have done something bad. A lot of our adult neuroses come from this kind of experience. Um, plants and animals, I'll say animals have this, uh, again, we call it some level of consciousness or proto-consciousness where they have, they experience sensation. They, they experience uh, some level of, in, they have instincts and they have some level of intuition where they're guided in some way, but it's not like consciousness in the sense of like, uh, I'm like going to plan my future, right? Then this brings us to early humans, 
early humans uh, and, and primitive cultures. So we're even talking Homo sapiens, not like not like Homo erectus or Neanderthals. Like uh, early Homo sapiens had something that uh, Jung called participation mystique, and even indigenous cultures and like you know maybe intellectuals might even call like dumber humans like have this have this experience where they don't really make a separation between um uh what's outside of them and what's inside of them so if you look at early religions like animism or um anything where like they're like oh there's like a spirit to this cup there's a spirit to the plants like what we do somehow affects the world uh I just want to go back i, I wasn't saying dumber like i think is negative i actually think there's a lot of value in it i'm just saying early psychologists, the way they write about it, it's like, oh, these like these um, these primitive humans didn't really get the separation. Right. So uh, so they would basically project their internal conscious, their internal psychic contents, like their feelings, their intuitions, um, their their internal experience, the things in the outside world. Whereas so for, for them, you know, for an, an early human or an, you know, an indigenous human and indigenous culture, for them to do a ritual to make it rain totally makes sense. It's like everything they experience maps to their internal experience. Everything they externally experience maps to their internal experience. So uh, why wouldn't doing a rain dance make it rain, right? For us in the Western world, there's like, oh, well, there's no causality there. But to them, it makes sense. This is participation mystique. It's where idolatry comes from, like believing that this golden calf somehow is your leader or, or whatever. Um, but this is something that's still a mechanism within ourselves. And so now to take all of what we just said and bring it over to the psychic side, uh, you know, which pertaining to the psyche, we could go backwards and say, um, uh, we all have ourselves, right? We're, we're not talking about our physical bodies anymore. We're talking about our identities. <clears throat> ourselves are identified uh, by our ego, right? I call myself Ruan, you call yourself whatever it is, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, but he's not just an ego. He's got all these things under the surface, under the surface of his identity. Uh, that's not his physical body or your physical body. It's all these things in the unconscious. So we go, the ego is just like the identifier. It's like the, it's a thing that makes the psychic part of you or the, the elements of your psyche kind of collected in a thing that we can call, okay, that is, that is yourself, right? So what is the self made of aside from an ego? These more ancient uh, unconscious elements, which are less personal, which we can call archetypes. So from a reductionist standpoint, we can say like an archetype is a set of behaviors and patterns that is not unique to one person. Like, so we have <clears throat> a collection of traits that we can call, oh, this is the hero archetype. This is uh, what the hero is made up of these traits. And there's a little bit of hero in me, there's a little bit of hero in you, there's a little bit of hero in, you know, whoever. And like, it might express in different levels. Like there's, there's a a goddess of love in all of us. There's a trickster in all of us. There's a wise old man in all of us. Like these are poetic ways of saying we have certain traits in common with many other people to varying degrees, right? Like uh, I might have more trickster, you might have more hero, whatever. But really, all of these these are just impulses that we've personified because it's easier of us to think like a character that lives inside of us rather than like just to list a set of traits. Um, and you know. As humans, we personify things. It's just easier for us to relate because a huge part of our brain is for relating with people. So when we're talking about abstract concepts, it's easier to uh, identify it as Aphrodite or as Zeus or as Shiva rather than thinking of like, oh, these like this list of behaviors, right? But then you think if you want to keep breaking things down, what are archetypes made of? All right, so what's what's the warrior made of? The warrior is made of uh, certain 
impulses like aggression, um, boldness, bravery, sense of duty. And you can, you can break this up and think of these now as entities, right? So like a warrior is more than just one emotion. Um, if you're like overcome by the warrior archetype or if like, you know, you're expressing the warrior archetype, it's not like you're aggressive in every moment, but that's one element. Like that's one like a uh, piece of the warrior toolkit or one piece that makes up a warrior, you know, um, the, the, the goddess of love, the lover might not have aggression anywhere in her or her as an entity, but it might, they might both have a little bit of lust. They, I mean, you can, you can imagine this now. So we break it down one more level. We have these elements. Uh, and, and in Western mysticism, this is what would be called an elemental. So like when someone is possessed with rage or possessed with l uh, lust or something like that, or possessed by greed, like we know what this experience is like. It's typically a momentary experience in a human's life. But if someone is like seeing red with rage, we can conceptualize it as like, oh, like there's like this rage demon or rage entity or element that just exists in the collective unconscious and it happens to be overcoming the individual right now like ruan is throwing the table because he's overcome by this rage elemental again the elemental side is just a way of conceptualizing it so like in uh medieval mythologies you might like actually imagine it is like this fire demon that floats around and sometimes incepts uh, a man when he's like like red with rage or anything and actually uh it's interesting because you know this this relates to the light separating into colors you know, it's like the color red, for instance, uh, it's just a section of the electromagnetic spectrum uh, that, you know, that vibrates at a certain thing. And we've evolved to see it as red. Uh, this red that we see, uh, I mean, it's the reason why this, there's only this section of light that we see. Like we don't have a, we didn't evolve for, with a reason to see infrared rays or be able to see x-rays, although they exist. Maybe there's some life form that can see these things. Uh, we've evolved to see this, uh, this, uh, this section of the electromagnetic spectrum because there's some purpose. So like red, green, these things uh, have evolved with our psyches and evolved with our biology for a function. So red uh, not only is a color that we see, red is associated with a set of emotions that for most of us, it might not come into practical use. Like when do we need, but at some point in our, in our primitive unconscious, it did matter. Like red uh, is the color of blood. So like the electro, the section of the electromagnetic spectrum that uh, vibrates at the, or that, um, that, that blood reflects is the color that we see as red. And there's a reason for that. And now we have associations with the color of red. We might think aggression. We might think violence, we might think of fire. We might think of passion. Um, red lipstick gives us a certain, uh, association. So when we see a red tablecloth or a red dress, we also have that association perhaps with lust or whatever. Um, it's, it's, this is one point that Neumann made in his book, which I thought was interesting because like a couple of years ago, um, I was interviewed by Brian Bejin and Fearless Man. It's on their YouTube, on your YouTube channel. And we were talking about getting a numbed out guy to feel again. And he, he, he brought up the example that I think a lot of guys that I understood, but it's pretty abstract. I think a lot of guys are like, what are you talking about? It was like, okay, for a guy who's not feeling like, look at these two colors, look at red and look at blue. Tell me how they feel. And to someone who's very numbed out to his feelings, numbed out to the signals of his unconscious, these more primitive aspects of his ability to perceive the world, he might be like, what are you talking about? Like red and blue, they don't make me feel anything. But certainly they do. Like the whole idea behind, say, the whole idea behind fashion, behind aesthetics is that something about color configurations and spatial configurations do affect our emotions, if, if only subconsciously. But even the most numbed out person will recognize like, 
if they walk into a room that is spotless and clean and orderly, they feel a lot different than if they walk into the same room and there's dirty socks all over the floor. Like we have this, we, we have these uh, uh, unconscious, this, the, the environment will unconsciously affect us in this way. So going back to the, the elements and the colors, if now we were just to con just complete the analogy, these colors, we can, these uh, raw emotions that can possess us at times, these one track, uh, these one track uh, impulses, we, if you put them all together, the Roy G. Briv spectrum, we, we go back to white light. And here's where it can get mystical. We can think of like, oh, consciousness is all one. This is something that Jung talks about all the time is like, as you go from the most conscious personal ego, like the ego is the most personal element of the psyche. Like it's the part that we identify with our name as our identity, all the way to the oneness, which is the most abstract thing, which maybe only makes sense when you're on mushrooms. Um, you can look at the spectrum of like, as you go deeper into the unconscious, things become less personal, which is why when you get like a flash of inspiration, it might doesn't seem like it comes from you, it seems like it comes from the collective unconscious. And even this idea of the, the, the term collective unconscious seems bizarre from an ego's perspective, you're like, oh, some part of me is like this collective soup of ideas that we're all connected by. I mean, there's some evidence of that, like certain scientific discoveries were made by people in other parts of the world with no communication at the same time. Like there, there might be some part of our psyche that's all connected. It was very hard for the ego to perceive this in a way that makes sense. But if you look at it the other way, if you look at it from the oneness perspective and see, instead of seeing, okay, here are ourselves as a standard unit and part of ourselves is this collective soup of the unconscious. If you look at it from the, the whole first, it's kind of like, um, uh, here you have consciousness or proto consciousness or, you know, the experience of, perception in this totally impersonal everything comes from this way and then you look at like evolution of light of of light and life um basically who we are and our egos are fragments of consciousness they don't know any better it's like you as uh, as a conscious as a conscious individual perceiving the world is basically like a liver cell in a body like the liver the cell inside of your liver doesn't know that it's inside of a liver it doesn't know that's part of a body but it is and we just can't tell um, so then we have, if, if you think of, I know this is abstract, but you think of yourself as like a cell within an organ within a greater body and randomly things start to affect it. And we, we try to, you know, we use religion and mysticism to try to make meaning of it. <clears throat> there actually might be a method to all the madness when we seek synchronicities and coincidences. It might be that we're part of this great body and something happened, you know, to this body and it's affecting these two things at the same time. Um, anyway, not to, yeah, anyway, that's, that's the idea there. Um, and this goes back to the amoeba because the amoeba can't tell what's in within it and what's without it. I'm going to let this boat do whatever this boat is doing. I live right by the ocean, so you can't, you can't help the sounds of the ocean. Um, all right. So <clears throat> when it comes to the human ego, what defines an ego as opposed to like a proto consciousness is that the ego sees itself as separate from the world. Basically, the ego is the formation of separation. And we talked about within the hero's journey, the son of swords is now separating from nature, trying to go do its own thing, assert its own agenda, see itself as separate from the Garden of Eden. Um, the ego, what defines an ego, hold on, should I wait for this boat? We're going to keep going. Um, the ego sees it separate from the world. So like a formed ego or even a proto ego will, can recognize, okay, here is me, here is the other, but also, and here's where human beings get into trouble because this is a purely human uh, experience where the ego sees itself as a separate entity from the rest of the self. This goes back to our ship captain analogy. 
the ego is this new hire for the ship. It's like, oh shit, there's all these old timers on the ship. Some of them are friendly, some of them are not. They're all doing their own thing. And uh, here is where, here's the part of the, the hero's journey, which is, uh, here's where all the practical application comes in, is you, your conscious self as an ego needs to get the whole boat online, uh, uh, you know, on the same page together. Otherwise, you're going to have havoc. Um, what Neumann refers to is like a, 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 the birth of the hero is where the ego is no longer afraid of its unconscious. Because like when we're talking about all this mother complex stuff, obviously we're, we're speaking about, you know, we might relate it to mythology. It might show up in your relationship with your mother or with women or, or whomever. But we're talking about stuff that's in your own psyche, right? Um, your experience, your inability to act the way you want, your inability to act as an adult in relationships, it doesn't really have to do with whatever your actual mom is doing, but it might have to do with your relationship to that element of yourself. And for as long as your ego is afraid of these unconscious elements of the self, which we might personify as the terrible mother archetype or the overbearing father or something like that, if you're afraid of it, then it's controlling you. Um, Carolyn Elliott uh, references in her book this quote by Carl Jung over and over again, and I love it. Um, it's, um, until you become conscious of the unconscious, it will run your life and you will call it fate. So all of this work, whether you're going from a mystical lens or a psychological lens, it's like how can you get uh, get this part of yourself, which is not your ego, this other, the rest of the, the seafarers on, your, on the boat that is yourself on the same page so that they're not, they're not mutinying or messing up your life because – all of these archetypes, even though that they have evolved separately, um, they they all are trying to just fulfill their function. Uh, and uh, if you can get them in line, they will end up moving your boat in one direction as opposed to pulling you in 20 different ones. Um, so another way to look at uh, the selves and just going back to our, our pyramid of evolution, both physically and, and psychically, is that um, the, an individual, an individual, a self, is kind of like a node within the sea of consciousness. Um, it's kind of like this clumping of matter that has some sort of uh, distinct meaning, like an amoeba in, in the ocean. And um, one thing that's important to note when it comes to humbling the, the ego is that the ego is a product of the unconscious. An ego is a product, perhaps, of the collective unconscious, meaning that your ego, as, as uh, as life has evolved from being random replicating matter to single celled organisms to multi celled organisms with organs, um, your ego is just another extension of that. It's like uh, for, for life to evolve to a certain point, it realized we need more than just an instinctual way of organizing um, the cells. I mean, this, the like proto consciousness, for instance, like, um, like a lobster doesn't have an ego. It's not conscious in the way we think. But even and it doesn't even have a central nervous system, but it has something that organizes itself as, as a thing. Like before consciousness, um, pain was actually the very first uh, element of, let's say, proto consciousness. Whereas, like if an organism can experience pain, the entire unit of the organism, all its random organelles, all its random impulses doing different things, um, will move away from that thing. Will at least like organize in a way that it's um, it can use move as a unit, uh, and it's. Uh, well, anyway, I'm going to get to that in a second because I have a quote that I want to read. Um, but it's important for your own humility first. I mean, it's even a leadership principle. If you want to be a good leader of a group of unruly people, uh, you need some humility first. I mean, I'm listening to 
extreme ownership right now by Jocko Willink, um, mainly because he, he might be on the show soon. Uh, but uh, that whole idea behind it, extreme ownership, like Jocko tells the story uh, about how basically a bunch of people in his platoon messed up. But as a leader, he had to take ownership. Like, humil- if he wasn't humble, he would have lost the group and he would have never, he would never succeeded as a leader. So recognizing that your ego is a product of the conscious, it's like almost like the unconscious elements, your archetypes almost hire this ego to lead them. So it's your job to do a good job and recognizing that they do things uh, in a certain way because we think of the traps that, you know, I'm calling out MGTOW people because uh, I think they're an extreme version of it, but really anybody who has a big ego, and this is where the negative side of the ego is, where the ego itself thinks it's better than all of these other older uh, proven elements of the psyche, which are the archetypes. Um, so going back to the separation from nature, if you look at if you look at nature as a consciousness, uh, and, and this goes to back to the Uruburos, the snake eating its tail, like nature is eating itself. It's like the, it's a seamless uh, web of creation. There's no separation within the Uruburos. Um, for instance, like nature doesn't care if a lion eats a gazelle. Uh, nature just wants nature to continue. It's like kind of the infinite game idea. Like nature just wants nature to continue. Like there's no like it doesn't it doesn't favor individual things necessarily. Survival for the fittest. Nature is a cruel. I mean, nature is just indifferent. But the lion does care if it eats the gazelle. The gazelle does care if it's eaten or not eaten by the lion. And um, this is one another way of looking at like the fragments of of consciousness. If we think of ourselves, this is what separates humans and the ego from the rest of the world. Um, so I want to go back into self-sabotage. Uh, so one example, let's say, um, cause I'll actually, I even, I'll even use the example of making this podcast. Like this is a little bit of an abstract one. Um, I'm even noticing myself, like when I'm speaking faster now, it's like, oh, where am I going with this exactly? And I, I've had this like love hate thing with publishing and, and social media, like with marketing and stuff, I have all these ideas that I want to share. I also want to make a living. So I, of course, you have to market them in certain ways. And that's like a big challenge for a lot of people who just want to be creative and like, well, I want to be creative for a living or I want to have to not worry about money and you have to learn marketing. And like with social media, especially like my life and livelihood is kind of dependent on people paying attention to me on the internet. Right. But on a core level, especially as I get older, especially as social media develops and becomes more and more addictive, I don't really like participating in it. And like every time I, I, I mean, I, I don't run my own Instagram. I know I very rarely, I don't even log into YouTube or anything. I have a very awesome team that takes care of that for me now. Um, but I, I have this like, like weird thing. Like in a lot of my videos now, I'm saying like, please get off the internet. Like I prefer that people listen to this in a podcast because at least they can go out and do things in the world while they're listening rather than sitting on a screen. Um, and it, it reminded me of a thing. I was going back to the Amoeba thing now of like, why is an amoeba wiggling? What's it doing with itself? Like, what's the purpose of all this stuff? And I, I randomly remembered this, um, the very first like creative work I really finished and I and then I published to the world was this ebook on public speaking that I, uh, I was actually speaking about this with my girlfriend because we, we both have done um, door-to-door sales jobs. <clears throat> and she was looking back at like all the suffering she went through and she was like, uh, I kind of regret She's just passing by, so giving her a wink. I kind of regret uh, doing this. And I look back at those times and like all the suffering I went through. And this might be a man-woman thing. I look back at the suffering and, I, and I'm like, uh, 
I'm so proud of myself that I went through that suffering. And it's a funny random aside, like um, I sold uh, I sold insurance for a couple months and it was terrible job. Worst, like like the, the product was really shitty. So I felt really bad when people bought, but then I also needed to make money. And um, I was hired to sell supplementary insurance to farmers like a couple hours south of uh, Buffalo where I went to college. So like I was out in the sticks, I was walking in a suit in the snow every day. I hated it. Um, and I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to do something creative. She just made me a smoothie, so I'm going to take a sip. Mm. But in those two months, I think I sold one policy and I think it might've even like got canceled because I really was not into the job. But for two months, every day I wake up at the crack of dawn, put on my suit, drive an hour and a half into the farm country. I'd maybe talk to one person just to say that I did my job and I would park on a mountain and I would uh, move into the passenger seat. Uh, I'd, I'd blast the heat for a couple minutes and I'd turn it off because I was trying to save gas because I was making zero dollars. And I would sit in the cold in my suit in like, in like a, in, on a mountain in farm country and like type away at this public speaking ebook. And uh, the ebook's been on, I'm not going to even say the name because uh, it's not something I care for people to, to, to read or anything. It was a book on public speaking. Uh, zero copies sold. Um, I spent maybe, I don't know, many hours on it, many, many hours in the cold. And, uh, you know, so like there was no productive value to that in my life. It was just an amoeba wiggling. But I look back at that, I'm like, I'm so fucking proud of myself that I put myself through that level of suffering, kind of meaningless suffering. But for some reason, like, like, uh, you know, I, I was doing it for myself. And I was thinking about this podcast, too, because like, uh, especially with this episode, I I, I, I want to talk about amoebas and like this idea of evolution and the psyche. And I, I was like kind of unsure of where I was going with it, honestly, um, which maybe is a terrible thing to say in a podcast. I am going to bring us home with, with some practical tips just in case you're wondering. But I was like, why do I even make podcasts? Like, why do I do this? Like, and it's not necessarily for an audience, and which maybe is a bad thing to say. Like, I know I, I, I know that this podcast helps people. I, I hope it does. I hope it's entertaining. I get that feedback from people, which honestly is what keeps me consistent. If, if it wasn't consistent, I would just wait for until I felt really good about a topic and made it. But I kind of, I kind of uh, keep myself accountable because I know people do care. And, you know, based on the downloads, people listen to it. So I, I you know, I want to keep serving you. But the real reason why I make the podcast or why I pick these topics is that I find them interesting. Like these solo podcasts I started doing because Anytime I would get high by myself, I end up talking to myself and I end up talking to myself about what I've been reading. And at some point I was like, you know what, these are maybe useful for other people to hear me talk about this and not just talk about it to myself in my room. So I started publishing these ideas. Not that, not that I'm ever high when I do these, but a lot of the, a lot of the ideas that I come up with, uh, are a combination of reading, really good reading material and cannabis. Um, but anyway, like I do this for my own entertainment. Like if you put me on an island I, by myself with no internet, I would still do some version of these podcasts just for myself, I guess, uh, which maybe is a selfish thing. But, you know, uh, kind of a personal philosophy I have is like you're on the right path when the selfish act and the altruistic act is the same thing. It's something I even would say in sex workshops. Like, you know, you're touching your partner the right way when it's both the thing that you want to gratify yourself with selfishly and it happens to also be what they want. If you're doing things just for other people, you're going to get resentful. It's also going to be a little off. It might put pressure on the other person. This is not this. This analogy can be stretched far outside of the bedroom to any sort of interaction. But going back to the, the topic of today, this is just like this is wiggling. Like, what's the point? What's the point of all this? Like, you know, we're all going to die anyway. 
Um, so bringing us home, this brings us to the topic of centroversion, which is as opposed to introversion of extroversion. It's kind of, it's the, it's an L it's a, it's a function, I guess, or an expression of the ego where it sees itself as the center of the, of everything. Right. <clears throat> we were talking about like a toddler, any, any experience and any emotional experience that happens for a toddler, it assumes it's all about itself. It's parent yells, his parent is upset. It's like, Oh, what did I do? I must've done something wrong. Obviously as an adult grows up, it recognizes, okay, these are, these are separate things. I don't need to feel bad because my parent had a bad day. Um, but this is, this is part of the development of an ego. Um, and, uh, Hold on, I skipped over something that I wanted to say. Randomly talking about my ebook. Oh yes, okay. So uh, the whole point of all of this, the the element of individuation, of expressing your greatest self, living your greatest life, commanding reality, entering the flow state is the ego overcoming its fear of the unconscious, whether it's the internal terrible mother archetype or the father wounding or the dragon within you, until you are willing to face the fear, until your ego, because I mean, the dragon is you as well, right? Until your ego, your identity is willing to face the fear, it is not a hero. And that's the what it has to do. The reason why we have these, the reason why we're so moved by these hero journey stories is that that's what all of us have to do to overcome our personal demons, which, from a centroverted view will affect the external demons. I mean, it's kind of a mystical view if you fix your insides, so it will fix your outsides, but uh, there's a lot of evidence, at least anecdotally, that's the case. And I wanna read this uh, quote by Neumann, because uh, we're talking about, uh, oh yeah, the so, so the archetypes, they've all developed with a single function, right? Like the protector archetype in you may be developed to protect you from an abusive parent or protect you from neglect, but now it's not necessarily serving your function, but it can. Uh, as a, If you're a parent, you do need to express the protector for your family, for your tribe, but it's not necessarily useful if it's protecting you from anybody who wants to be nice to you. Uh, so, so I want to read this quote by Neumann. With the emancipation of consciousness and the increasing tension between it and the unconscious, Ego development leads to a stage in which the great mother no longer appears as friendly and good, but becomes the ego's enemy, the terrible mother. So this is the birth of ego. It's recognizing, oh shit, I'm on this ship with a bunch of uh, badass pirates and I don't know what to do about it. Some of them might be trying to kill me or thwart my plans. Well, I'll continue. The devouring side of the Uruburos is experienced as the tendency of the unconscious to destroy the consciousness. This is identical with the basic fact that ego consciousness has to wrest the libido, the drive for life, from the unconscious for its own existence for, unless it does so, its specific achievement falls back into the unconscious, in other words, is devoured. So we were talking about how the mother archetype, uh, if, if, you, if you confront the terrible mother within your psyche and you fail, the result is emotional castration. Um, but later, when the personality feels itself allied not only to the ego but to the whole, consciousness no longer sees itself threatened to the degree that the adolescent ego was, and the unconscious now represents other aspects of other aspects than those of danger and destruction. So this is in the in the maternal myths. Myths: uh, the hero confronts the terrible mother, the the negative expression of the maternal aspect of self, beheads Medusa beheads Isis, she is reborn as a good mother. This is basically your own uh, 
your own unconscious being like, oh, okay, uh, this ego is strong enough to take care of me. This ego is a good enough leader to lead us. And then the rest of yourself gets in line. So it's kind of like an internal shit test, right? Like your own self, the, you know, the quote unquote demons within you, the dragon within you is going to basically fuck shit up for you until you have the balls to stand up to it. But also the, the leadership ability to be like, okay, we're actually going to get online and drive the ship in the right direction. This can all seem, uh, again, abstract. But you can think of any, I mean, I'll use the marketing example for myself. Like for me to, one of the reasons why I keep pushing the archetype class, for example, to bring all this uh, to my own life, like um, it's one of the, f it's what it's the, the most uh, individually directed I've ever done anything that makes me money. Obviously the archetype class is a class that I earn income from. Uh, and, you know, I think it's a good course and all that stuff, but it was one of the first times that instead of making something with like marketing principles in mind of like, oh, let me test the market and then present it in a certain way for it to be sold. I, I actually just took what I find personally fascinating, put it into a thing that, yes, it is something that can be packaged and sold to people because we are exchanging value here. But it's, it's, it's like, it's the first time in my life that I was so, I felt personally that I was so authentically bringing something that I personally would just, just wants to exist and also matching it in a way that it can also be profitable in the marketplace. That's the main reason why, I mean, if you listen to this podcast, I, listen, I, I plug it every time. Uh, that's, you know, why, I mean, I could make another course this year. I, I might at some point, but I really just, uh, I'm just, I'm just proud of it. And whether or not people buy it or not, just like my, just like my public speaking ebook, whether anybody buys it or not, I think it's friggin' cool. And I'm very proud that I went through that struggle in myself. Cause actually the whole thing with behind it was that, I spent a lot of time writing that course. I actually was on vacation while I was doing it and like skipping out on a lot of fun things, but I was so immersed in it because even though it was, it was a struggle of a sort, it was, um, it was like a self directed struggle. I really felt like I was being a hero in my own creative endeavors, doing something that I felt proud of. I felt good about it was entertaining myself. It was engaging myself. And I also knew it would be beneficial to other people. Um, so this is one of, uh, this is, uh, an element of ego, uh, taking positive leadership over the archetypes. It first has to see itself as the humble King. It has to recognize it, recognize that yes, it might be in charge, but all of the other subordinates have been around longer and you have to listen to it. So to bring this to like, just what do you do in your life? This is what we would call listen to your feelings. The thing is though, that, uh, just because you have a feeling based impulse, cause like, you know, your ego thinks in thoughts. Uh, what you consider to be your own thoughts is your ego. Um, but all of these unconscious tendencies, like this impulse to be destructive, this impulse to do this or do that or positive or negative, this creative impulse to do a good thing. Um, this is your, these are your unconscious elements, your archetypes trying to also direct the ship. Like they don't have the megaphone. They're not actually at the steering wheel of the ship, but they might be yelling like, Hey, let's do this. Hey, let's do that. It's not that you listen to everything. I mean, first, if you can recognize what each what each uh, element of yourself is good at and what its function is, you can just like managing a team, you can recognize what it's trying to do. So this is where, aside from the fun and the entertainment aspect of personifying these aspects of the psyche, if you actually can be like, okay, I have this tendency to do such and such. I have a, we call it a protector. I have a tendency to distrust people or push people away, or I have a tendency to, uh, I don't know, pick, pick any impulse. If you were in charge of a team and you had a person on your team who's like has this this trait, 
It's like, how can I make good use of this person so they're actually exercising their gifts, but also it's not destructive. In fact, it's constructive to the ship. How can this protector be uh, expressed? So like, that's the, that's the benefit of identifying, um, uh, identifying a, a character set or a set of impulses as, a, as an archetype. And this is, and this we naturally do when we have dreams uh, where we we're talking to this person, or we, you know, like this. Um, I mean, in the archetype class, I'm not trying to not trying to plug it necessarily, but uh, I have a meditation that helps people helps guys recognize their testosterone driven impulses, and you know, within it is like personify what does he look like, right? It doesn't really matter what he looks like. It doesn't matter if he's got big muscles or a beard or carries a trident. Who cares? It's just like having this image allows you to interact with this part of yourself more. Um, I was doing this, uh, I was doing this live, this, this type of, um, meditation or visualization live with a client once <clears throat> because this guy had, um, had these, all these negative tens tendencies, basically of self-criticism and self-loathing. And obviously that sabotaged a lot of what he was trying to create in his life. And for various reasons, for whatever reason, arbitrary reasons, he envisioned this, uh, this, this set of characteristics, this archetype is like this red, uh, red bully like his, he would call it the red rubber bully it was like this rubber entity that was always laughing at him and like picking on him and uh you know through various communication uh we were trying to like see how can you become friends with this thing right is there an actual red rubber bully anywhere no but this is the personification of these characteristics that are sabotaging him so if he can relate to this part of himself and find the question i asked him was how can you like this red rubber bully has this, uh, has this function. It's trying to like talk down to people. It's trying to dominate. It's trying to prevent you from action. What is its motive and how can you have its motive met in a way that's constructive? And this is, this is, if you're, if you're leading a difficult team, it's, it's exactly the same thing. It's like, if you have a difficult subordinate, how do you get this person? Like this person has his own, his own individual motive. How do you get him to express his impulse and get his motives met and his needs met? in a way that actually is in line. How can, you know, if this person wants to fight, how do you put them in, in the front lines of the battlefield? This person wants to call the shots. How do you put them in charge of something that would be benefit to the collective? Um, and, you know, to bring us home, uh, right on time, I know I spoke a little bit fast again, but I don't know, I can't help it. Uh, working on it, we're all working on stuff, right? Um, the ego is to the self what, and this is, this is a Neumann uh, idea, Ego is to the self what the great mother is to the collective. It is a, or, or nature is to the collective. It is a, an element that, you know, takes charge of the group um, and uh, kind of represents the group. So like who you are is way more than your ego, is way more than your identity. But anytime we have to reference you or you have to reference yourself, you got to use a name, you got to use your conscious self because the, all the unconscious stuff is a lot more amorphous. Um, and, and this, <clears throat> this is basically the quote that I read earlier. Uh, the ego becomes a hero and takes control of the self and leads it towards individuation when it no longer becomes afraid of the great mother, just like the self is no longer afraid of the collective. It recognizes that it is itself a fragment of this whole. And, you know, if you take a spiritual lens on things, you know, we all are one and whatnot. If you can really think that way, especially for an example, um, interacting with someone you're in conflict with, if you can really really take on the lens that you are both elements of the same whole, the, the, um, the conflict becomes less real. Um, and you see this with any, uh, excuse me, it was, uh, 
any any warring state or like if you think of like after 9-11 there's almost no crime in new york why because all of new york was attacked by the external entity so all of the individual units of people in new york who would fight or kill each other or commit crimes they're like oh we're actually part of a great a whole because we have this bigger thing to fight if you and that's why uh within the hero's journey, very often the thing that unites yourself, the thing that gets your your timid ego to go into the unconscious and get to know it, slay the dragon, catch, uh, you know, save the princess and, and come back to the Shire as a, as a collective unit is some sort of external challenge because when all of the warring entities within your psyche is like, oh shit, there's this bigger thing we have to deal with, like whether, whether it's a, a cause for the collective or some internal pain, like we better get all on the same page. Even something as mundane as like, you're afraid to talk. You're afraid of talking to women because there's some element within you that constantly forces you to not speak in the presence of someone you're attracted to. You experience enough pain in that realm. You experience a hard enough heartbreak. That part of you that's, uh, you know, fighting yourself is going to recognize, oh shit, we're all suffering by fighting each other. Okay, I'll listen to the ego and whatever, become confident. Um, final idea to 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 end us, and this this might actually, I might I might do an episode on this later. Um, on mythology and leadership, because uh, this is an idea from Sapiens. Uh, Noah Yuval Noah Harari shared this idea in the opening chapter of Sapiens of why mythology exists. Because from the Jungian sense, we can, or from Joseph Campbell's perspective, mythology exists because um, it was a natural uh, expression of these unconscious ideas that existed within human psyche. Um, but from a more reductionist standpoint, like that doesn't totally make sense. Uh, they would say that the chickens before the egg, there, or the cars before the horse. Um, but uh, Harari would say mythology, humans evolved to create mythology because um, our social brains are not advanced enough to ha have uh, to organize beyond like 150 people. That's known as Dunbar's number. Like our, our social brains can't have that many relationships. So for 200 people to act as a, a cohesive unit, um, they can't do it just through socializing, right? Like your, our brains can't process that many relationships. So what humans developed and why humans were able to take over the world is that our consciousness, our egos, were able to formulate stories, mythologies, uh, concepts that allowed us to band together as a, as a greater family or bound together as a tribe or bound together as a city or a state or a nation. And by all identifying ourselves as Americans or as, uh, I don't know, as Christians or as, you know, name any group built around a mythology, built around an ideology. Now you can get thousands and thousands and millions of people to act synergistically as a super organism, as opposed to being like these warring individuals or warring states or warring smaller entities. <clears throat> so mythology being a product of the ego um, is very similar to the ego being a product of the unconscious where it developed something, it evolved something to organize the whole. Because if you look at the super organism of say United States of America, or the super organism of Christianity or any, any like group or any cult, let's say um, the individuals within it are basically like organs within an organism. Like if you think of your, yeah, your different organisms are, are uh, monitored by some sort of proto consciousness, the different elements of your psyche are monitored by your ego, a mythology uh, monitors or organizes thousands or, or unlimited uh, human consciousnesses to act as one on some level. Last idea, because I'm listening to this podcast, uh, Brian Green and Joe Rogan. Uh, Green has another idea of why mythologies exist. I don't think he took that perspective, although I think that all of these uh, reasons for mythology make sense. Uh, Brian Green, who's you know very atheistic, you know he teaches about physics, 
um, he was like the whole idea behind myths and fictional stories is that it's like emotional practice. Like you, you watch Luke Skywalker fight against Darth Vader and become the hero that saves the galaxy. It's like practice for your mind on how you should behave when confronting challenge. He never, he doesn't touch the, the, the stuff of how, how the elements of a fictional story represent things in our psyche, but you know, that's a Jungian thing. So I know I spoke really fast this time again. I meant to not have that much material. I don't know if I ended up repeating myself. So apologies, but I'm not sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, last uh, last things, uh, the Lieutenant Colonel Grossman podcast is coming out very soon. Highly recommend it, especially for guys, especially uh, for anyone who like, you know, I think of, I, I say this all in the podcast, so I'm going to repeat itself, but there's something about violence for the male psyche. And, and you know, it, going to what we're talking about today, like, uh, one of the archetypes within most men or one of the archetypes attached to testosterone, because it's true for most people is the warrior archetype and uh, all of the archetypes in us, all the impulses want to express. And I, you know, and um, Lieutenant Colonel Grossman shares a lot of why uh, violence is on the rise, uh, male suicide, depression, school shootings, the rise in video game use um, is basically like, you know, we have this internal hammer. It doesn't have expression in the first world in modern day. So it comes out in all these weird ways. So anyway, I thought it was really fascinating. And, you know, I highly recommend that. Uh, if you go to contemplativeman.com, you can check the new thing out that I, that I um, created. It's almost like a prequel to the archetype class. So whether or not you think the archetype class is uh, for you, you know, obviously the archetype class costs money. I think it's pretty cool. But the contemplative man um, is similar. And uh, it's something, and I created it, you know, with everybody in quarantine or semi-quarantine, I wanted to remind everybody the joys of thinking and introspection and not always consuming stuff. If you listen to this podcast, I'm grateful. I hope you get a lot of value out of it. But I also hope that you go home or do, I mean, you're probably home already, <laughs> that you spend some time by, my, by yourself and think your own thoughts because there's something very beautiful. And I think the most fulfilling thing to discover what's in your own unconscious. So... Ended up at an hour again. I uh, hope you're all well and doing whatever you do. Goodbye.